Hey Goblins, Brandon here. Uh, if you enjoy what we do and you'd like to help support us create more and maybe even take the podcast to weekly, then the best way right now that you can support us is to head over to patreon.com slash goblinsgrowlers. You can find all the different stuff we do there, one-page dungeons, uh, bonus audio for things, all kinds of stuff. So head on over there, uh, and even if it's just a dollar or you know however much you're comfortable doing, or if you can't put anything toward the Patreon, just tell a friend about it. Tell somebody about the podcast. That's another great way to support us. So, uh, patreon.com slash goblins growlers, uh, and we'll see y'all soon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Goblins and Growlers podcast. I'm Josh Maltby at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. I'm Brandon Dingus at Way of Brandalore on Twitter. How you doing, Brandon? I'm okay. It's Saturday morning. Uh, it's kind of chilly outside, so I'm uh, I've got some flannel pants on. I'm sitting here back in the office. Um, I've got a bunch of errands to run after this, so that's sort of like where my head's at right now. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I'm I'm decked out. For those of us who are not on the video right now, I'm decked out in my overclocked remix hoodie, uh, living living the warm and cozy life. And uh, yeah, it's, it got chilly fast. Yeah, real chilly fast. I haven't eaten breakfast yet, and it's 11 a.m., so that's where my brain's at right now. Mm-hmm. I've got my coffee. Um, I'm in good shape. I'm just going to eat a nice bill. Oh, I had sushi this morning, uh, leftover from last night, so I'm I'm fine there. I'm fine there. But uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you something funny that happened to me on Thursday night. Uh, it's not really funny. I just think uh, you might appreciate it. But I had to go to a creative marketing event for my company, and uh, we were talking about storytelling. Uh, we invited people into the space so we could just have conversations about storytelling. It was kind of a recruiting thing, too. And one of my coworkers, he was giving his talk on storytelling and he was framing it around uh, Saving Private Ryan. So he just kept going through it. And he's like, well, you know, uh, I need your help to, you know, do this talk and everything like that. And I was like, well, you know, I'll ch- I don't want to take over any specific part of it, but I'll chime in if you need me. But he way was underconfident about his ability to to do this. So he just like he just went through the whole thing. He didn't need any help. So I just kind of sat there and I ended up being sort of his uh, his assistant, more or less, which was fine because I didn't want to take over. But we got to talking about things like um, calls to action. Uh, We were talking about it in terms of storytelling. And then we were making it analogous with with like marketing and sales and things like that. And we were taught, you know, he, he is aware that I have a couple podcasts. So he's like, so, you know, when you do your podcast, what's your call to action? for uh for for your listeners and everything like that and i was so close i was so close to just instinctively saying oh telegraph telephone tell a friend about the goblins growlers podcast (laughs) (laughs) but i stopped myself and i said tell a friend about the podcast (laughs) (laughs) i thought of you and i meant to tell you i meant to text you about that the other day but i forgot to oh it's fantastic Mm -hmm. i love that so much (laughs) oh my god yeah, other than that, I've just been working uh, too much. So that's what's been going on this week. Yeah, I, I too have been living that life. So I feel you. I feel you. Mm-hmm. Had a part so, come in for one of my arcades. I spent uh, about 30 minutes last night put it, like pulling that apart and putting it back together. So that was nice. Hell yeah. Yeah, no soldering necessary. It does. It is nice when you don't have to solder anything because soldering is um, I'm terrified difficult. I'm terrified of it. And alarming. I'm terrified of it. You can always desolder something <laughs> to clean it up, 
But that just that just sounds about a thousand times more nerve wracking than soldering something. Yeah. Yeah. I've done a little bit of soldering and it's not it's not mm -hmm. something I feel very comfortable with just in general. Mm -hmm. So we're recording this actually uh, on the Saturday of Halloween weekend. Uh, so we won't I've, I've, I've I always like to be up front with everybody. So I'm not going to lie, lie to the audience and say, so, Josh, how was your Halloween since it's coming out after <laughs> Halloween? Um but I'm going to go ahead and predict that my Halloween is going to be pretty chill and I'm going to go to bed early tonight, going over to a friend's to watch some movies. Uh, and then I'll probably get tired around 11 o'clock and beg to come home and then come home and go to bed. And that will be Halloween. I know what you mean when you say beg to come home, but I picture you just walking over to the front door and just like pawing at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And then we've got there's a costume contest at work on Monday. But I have way too much to do, so I'm pretty sure I'm not going to participate. My costume is going to be overworked manager in a tie. <laughs> but I really yeah, enjoy that's my about right. But I really enjoy my job, and it's a great place to work, so I'm not complaining. I just have a lot to do that I'm looking forward to getting done. Yeah, that's that's where I'm at as well. Um, so, yeah, what are we talking about, Josh? For today's topic, we're going to be talking about some pretty heavy stuff. Um, we've got content warnings for a lot of things unfortunately um huh. yeah just generally content warning for the episode yeah it's it there's a lot coming up uh there's going to be some references to things like suicide uh drug use uh there's going to be some, a lot of angry christianity and uh Brandon and I you you may be aware of this with the both of us but we we're not big on angry Christianity. We're okay with Christianity overall. We're not big on angry Christianity. I just want to clarify because like technically that's like technically that's not true because it's sort of angry religious oriented thinking because it's not necessarily all Christianity. If you uh, dig into some parts of it, there's uh, uh, when we when we get to talking about um, Pat pulling and stuff, it's uh, uh, she she and her son were secular jews and oh yeah. i did not know that yeah well i mean secular being the operative term there but uh i just i don't want to conflate moral attitudes necessarily with religious points of view that is completely fair thank you for the correction mm -hmm. so we're talking about the satanic panic y'all yep as promised uh on our last episode we uh, talked about Mazes and Monsters, which is really at its core a goofy movie about uh, adapted from a misunderstood book uh, from a bad writer who was trying to make a buck. Uh, and this is the more serious side of the coin, talking about the actual social movement that influenced uh, the creation of that, because um, you could read Mazes and Monsters almost as kind of like sort of in a so bad it's good category, like it wasn't necessarily made. Well, it, it explicitly was not made as a parody of what was going on socially at the time. But watching it now, you know, 40 years later, uh, it's parts of it are hilarious because of just how off base they are. And that was that all flowed from the satanic panic movement of the 80s and this manufactured perception of tabletop role playing games and just fantasy games um, as epitomized uh in the eyes of a lot of people by dungeons and dragons yeah and it was something i had not realized as part of you know the reading that we were doing 
when we were watching Mazes and Monsters, I hadn't realized that that was kind of the jumping off point for it becoming a national sensation. This whole like, oh, Dungeons and Dragons is dangerous. Here's all the problems it can cause. That was the Mazes and Monsters was really the point that that went from something that a few people were talking about in a few places around the country to being something that was a national sensation that was talked about everywhere. Yeah, and I don't think there was necessarily a cause and effect with Mazes and Monsters in that, but it was just sort of coincident timing. Yeah, it kind of, it seemed like it was something that it was a movement that was starting to build a little bit, Mm -hmm. and that was just like the tipping point for it. Yeah, and... You know, for for anybody who's never actually heard of it before, obviously, the Satanic Panic is this period in the 1980s where Dungeons and Dragons became really demonized. Uh, just role playing games became very demonized as ways of uh, manipulating slash controlling slash influencing young people into some people would say moving away from God. Some people would say moving toward demonic satan worship uh moving toward the occult moving toward witchcraft it sort of depended where where you were looking at it from uh as to where you thought it was drawing people or sending them but it was all sort of generally coming from an extremely right-wing moral conservative place uh no matter your stripes in that situation I'm so glad we started talking about uh, the ways in which like kids are being influenced and things like that, because I almost forgot a character that I wanted to talk about as part of this. And that was the perfect like reminder for me. Don't worry. Don't worry. We'll get there. Okay. Okay. All right. Bated breath. (laughs) Bated breath. Um, But for me, for me, um, the satanic panic wasn't really there because I was sort of like the half generation after that. Um, I started playing in playing D&D in 95, and that was um, sort of well after the high tide of all that. It was still a thing. And much like how, you know, your parents got on Facebook a long time after you did, after it had stopped being cool, like people who were still talking about the satanic panic in the mid 90s uh, had really sort of missed the boat on it. And they were just operating off these societal echoes of things they were vaguely aware of like oh isn't D bad that kind of thing so i never i never really experienced that uh when i started playing DD, i had no idea there was even like an issue like that people remembered about it being evil or bad or anything like that so i just started playing and my folks my folks are very level-headed they're very liberal and very level-headed and they were just like yeah okay like oh so you're just you're just going next door and you're just going to play, you know, DM. well, be back by, you know, like 11 o'clock. Uh, you know, it's fine. Uh, it keeps you dad. Dad was always like, I mean, at least I know where you are. <laughs> like you're, you're not out <laughs> running the streets, uh, especially once we started playing over at my house on the pool table. And he's like, yeah, I mean, you know, do what you want. You guys are being safe. Uh, I know your friends, you're, you're all aren't stupid. So yeah, whatever. <laughs> he never, he and mom never really understood it. But they were just like, oh, yeah, if it's something you enjoy and your friends enjoy it, uh, you know, just go for it. I mean, yeah, like what are what are they going to do? Be like, man, I really wish that Brandon was out just like gallivanting around and blowing stuff up with firecrackers. Like, wouldn't that be better? Mm-hmm. A lot yeah, of definitely. underage drinking. Wouldn't that be better? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it was never really a thing in my household. So for me, the satanic panic is is almost purely 
sort of an academic historical exercise to read about and talk about because I have no personal connection to it whatsoever. Yeah, I didn't start playing D&D until I was in my late teens. I want to say I was like 18 or 19 before I started. And uh, so it was it was a lot to like learn, but I didn't have to deal with any of the family structure issues because I'd already moved out at that point. Mm -hmm. So my parents didn't know, quite frankly, that I was starting to play D&D and the people around me who were adults who knew didn't care. But this was also like mid 2000s at this point. So. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't know that a whole lot of people really cared at that point, but you'd, you'd still get the occasional like I would be talking about a D&D game with somebody and somebody would be like, wait, isn't that isn't that that game where like they do the witchcraft like that there's actual witchcraft in it? And I was like, no, no, <laughs> you're thinking of a different game, friend. I I know actual witches like people who are Wiccan who practice actual witchcraft and no, they're very different. They're incredibly different. In <laughs> fact, I think the Wiccan folks I know would be angry at you for thinking that. <laughs> nobody, nobody goes to a Wiccan ceremony and is like, all right, now who's casting fireball? Who brought their dice? But where, where is lightning bolt coming from today? Like who prepared that this morning? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> You know, like, uh, you know, that's just a really that's a solid example of just how this whole thing is just born of ignorance. It's it's born. It's born of perhaps um, uh, incidental ignorance, and it is bred and reared by further willful ignorance. Yeah. I will say for personal reference, uh, when we started up G&G, and I was talking to everybody about it because, of course, very excited about the concept. My mother goes, oh, but Dungeons and Dragons is dangerous. Like, don't get too deep into it. And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, come again. When when was I going to have this reveal? And she was like, well, one of you, one of our family friends when you were growing up, um, his father played a lot of D&D. And, you know, he and his friends would just vanish for hours and hours and sometimes days at a time just playing D&D all the time and on one occasion uh your friend went in to ask his father for something and I guess it was during something particularly tense that was going on in the game and his father picked him up and threw him against a nearby wall for interrupting the game and so D&D is dangerous and you need to be careful and I'm like I'm going to back you up on all of that because I've already been playing D&D for years now. That is not a D&D problem. That is a that dude was an asshole problem. Yeah, that's a parenting problem right there. Vanishing <laughs> for days, um, being aggressive with your kid because they come to ask you a question. That That's a human problem, not a gaming yeah. problem. And lo and behold, this dude also had issues with things like alcohol, general anger management, not just while playing D&D. Like, dude had a lot of issues that he was working through mm -hmm. overall. D&D yeah. was an escape for him, and I guess he took that a little bit too seriously. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that we both sort of had some reading assignments for, for this episode, so... <laughs> So we didn't start it out like, uh, like, well, everybody, we're talking about the satanic panic today. So, yeah, that was wild, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> End of episode. 
Um, uh, I read um, Dangerous Games by Dr. Joseph Laycock, and uh, he is an assistant professor of religious studies at Texas State University. Uh, it it's a fascinating book, uh, and I will confess that I did not finish all of it, but it was split up into chapters, sort of talking about particular aspects. So I, I read the most relevant ones. Uh, and also it very much reads like an academic book. It reads like it reads like an academician who was writing a book for public consumption, but wasn't writing sort of a general reader readership book, if that makes sense. So there's sort of a lot of quoting, a lot of footnoting. Uh, very, very much feels like reading a thesis rather than a book, but it's fascinating, and I would recommend everybody check it out. Um, Josh, what did what did you read? I read uh, Satanic Panic, a pop culture paranoia in the 1980s, edited by Kier La Janice and Paul Carupe. Uh, I'm I'm going to be doing a lot of names today, and mm-hmm. hopefully, I don't mangle all of them. Um, I specifically was reading, this is like a collection of essays about the satanic panic. So I was reading a couple of specific articles, one of which was by Gavin Baddeley, which is uh, uh, Dicing with the Devil, the Crusade Against Gaming. And the other was by Paul Carupe, who also edited the book, which is 20 Sided Sins, How Jack T. Chick Was Drawn Into the RPG War. And invoking Jack Chick, I promise everybody at some point we will talk about Dark Dungeons. As Josh's fiance makes us watch at least once a year. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, Uh, the nice thing about Dark Dungeons as a movie is that it's like 45 minutes long. mm -hmm. So even if you're like, oh, not this again, at least it's over quick. And the subtitles are really nice Easter eggs throughout the film. (laughs) Um. But anyway, anyway, um, uh, I would I would encourage folks to pick up if you're interested in the Satanic Panic overall to pick up both of these books because they're incredibly informative uh, and offer a lot of context setting for everything. Because you know I consider myself sort of a fairly knowledgeable person about a lot of this stuff, but I learned plenty that I and it was like dots that I hadn't connected before just about culturally what what brought about the satanic panic and what what it grew out of from earlier ages because you know the satanic panic is really linked with the 80s um you think really from probably you know 79 80 81 through through probably 90 90 or 91 um uh where tabletop role-playing games were just demonized now the interesting thing is um the satanic panic sort of was an outgrowth of the charismatic cults panic of the 1970s, um, which, uh, you know, is pretty, pretty, uh, the exemplar for that, that a lot of people, that a lot of people probably will recognize is Jim Jones and Jonestown, um, where, you know, he was able to convince more than 900 people to kill themselves in Jonestown and Guyana, uh, the, the compound slash nation slash church, that he ran down there. Um, and that's just sort of one example. And you can find other examples of this. Like I think heaven's gate started back in the seventies as well. Um, you know, everybody probably remembers, you know, 20 some years later when the Hellbop comet came and they dressed themselves up in their track suits and committed uh, a mass suicide so they could go on the ship that was behind the comet. Uh, 
charismatic cults were very much in the social forefront, like the social news, et cetera, forefront in the seventies. And, you know, even that, um, you know, was still experiencing influences of Manson and the Manson family, uh, in the sixties. Right. So it, uh, it's just, it's society is something happening in society and people being scared about it and not knowing how to deal with it and not knowing how to contextualize it. Yeah. As you're talking about uh, the contents of the books we read, the Satanic Panic book has a ton of really amazing illustrations in it, many of them from like art and advertisements from the period. Um, I'm going to put this up near my camera just for a moment here. Mm-hmm. Oh, the dun- it's an- yeah, it's an image of the Dungeon Master from the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon in the 80s. Yeah, and it's advertising for Dungeons and Dragons hologram. I think they're like, uh, they're like playing cards. Mm-hmm. And so in every in every pack you can find a hologram, and it's you know like a wizard casting lightning bolt or something like that. Pretty cool things that like I didn't even know existed because those pieces of merchandise came out well before I was born. Right, but kind of neat to see some of the art and literature that was being published back in the, t- in the day and seeing it represented here in the book admittedly in black and white um but still very cool yeah it's it seems like the way things ended up working out was that this was something that had a little bit of movement in 1978 and then when james dallas egbert iii's disappearance became a national news story it really took off because Dungeons and Dragons was tied into that story so firmly by local media. And just to link back to our previous episode, the James Dallas Egbert disappearance and suicide is what inspired Rona Jaffe to very hastily write a sensationalized version of the story, which became Mazes and Monsters, which was then adapted into the Tom Hanks television movie. Right. So we did a lot of talking about that kind of towards the tail end of that episode. So I'm not going to rehash much of that today. If you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen if you want that context. Uh, But the the short of that story is he disappeared. A detective was hired to go and find him. The detective tied his disappearance to Dungeons and Dragons kind of loosely. A lot of popular news sites. Uh, I say sites. Gosh, a a lot of popular news journals. Damn millennials. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tied the disappearance to D&D more firmly than it actually was. And then uh, Detective William Deere later, after uh, James Dallas Egbert's tragic suicide, wrote a story about the whole thing, which was kind of his his like tell all novel. And that kind of sensationalized the news a little bit more. But even though he was sharing details, like it probably wasn't D&D that did this. It was probably James Egbert's uh, sexual preferences and his inability to find a community at the school he was at. I didn't realize this until today when I was double checking some of the information I was looking at. He was born. um, Pardon. He was born in. Uh, 62. Mm-hmm. He died at the age of 17. Mm-hmm. He was in college for a year before passing. He started college at 16. 
and was dealing with like that's yeah. too much. Yeah, and you know, you don't like I don't like to paint this with too broad a brush, but I've had some personal experiences with folks like this, but folks who are gifted often have trouble fitting in just because yeah. they're they're ahead of their peers in in a lot of ways and they have trouble finding those sort of equal relationships and it leads to social difficulties and being unable to fit in and in sort of I'm going to call it a pre-therapy society but I know it wasn't I know full well that it wasn't but I mean that just sort of in the context of it was before therapy as a as sort of a, a mechanism for for coping with issues was as widely accepted for quote unquote common folk uh as it as it is now I mean I remember 30 some years ago um my dad suggesting to my grandmother that she get so she talked to uh, a therapist or go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist or something and her response was you know I don't need to do that because I'm not crazy now looking back on it as a 40 year old man she no she wasn't you know she didn't have any really terrible like maladjustments or anything like that but she would have benefited from talking to somebody to deal with the anxiety that I realized she lived with for her entire life but she grew up in the depression um that mental health was a luxury not a requirement for folks you know back yeah then. yeah yeah exactly well and it's also you know parents weren't near as attentive to the sorts of struggles that their children may have been having at that time um mm -hmm. it's being a gifted student you know part of the trouble is that you are intellectually surpassing your peers but you are life experience exactly in line with them mm -hmm. and so when you end up in classes with people who are older than you of course you're going to feel out of place that just makes yeah. sense and it's interesting talking again a little bit about mazes and monsters there was that character in mazes and monsters that was 16 and in college so it's almost like ronan jaffe took the james dallas egbert character uh, person and split him up into a couple of different characters yeah yeah so all of that occurs D and D as a potentially dangerous thing becomes kind of a nationalized sensationalized story um but it doesn't gain full traction until Patricia Pulling, mm -hmm. whose yeah. son Irving Bink Pulling, uh, Bink being his nickname, um, found his mother's gun and commit suicide in 1982, right here in Hanover County. Yeah, yeah. This was, uh, it was June 9th, 1982. Not probably 10 miles from where I'm sitting right now. Josh, you're on the other side of the city. Uh, yeah. So it's a little bit further <laughs> for you. But um, it's fascinating because uh, Patricia Pulling founded Bo Bothered Against Dungeons and Dragons um, bad. And uh, there's, you know, hang on for the ride on this one because there's just sort of a lot to it. But um, you boil away everything. And the story is that she and her husband were coming home one day and coming down the driveway and they find her son's body on the porch. He had shot himself. Uh, out on the porch and they found him uh, the police uh, from from all accounts on the story it sounds like the police uh, sort of encouraged the the I'm gonna call I'm just gonna go ahead and call it the fiction that Dungeons and Dragons was uh, a prime influencer in this decision that he made because they asked 
oh, were you and your sons, de- you and your son, devil worshippers? Because we found these D and D books in there. He had been a member of a D and D club uh, in school where they were allowed. You know, for he was a, he was a gifted student as well. And uh, if when students perform well, they were um, you know allowed to go play in the D and D club or whatever. Um, the author of the book that I read, um, Doctor Lechik, uh, he says he reached out to some folks who were in that program with uh, Irving Poland back then, and uh, they were kept anonymous. But he said they talked about how really he played maybe a total of like nine hours over a couple of sessions with us. He wasn't super into it or anything like that. Um, but I'm not necessarily blaming the two police officers that were there or the, the whichever police officers that were there for planting the seed in Patricia Pulling's mind because they themselves were probably also sort of uh, influenced by what was going on culturally at the time. And probably just, you know, that incidental ignorance that I was talking about. And they, there's, you know, there is now and there always has been sort of a, a lack of critical thinking uh, among uh, adults in the United States and, you know, everywhere. Uh, you tend to take what you're handed. And if you're an officer and somebody saying like, well, yeah, like, yeah, you know, if like your captain or somebody is talking about, oh, yeah, you know, we're, we're learning that, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop role playing games are becoming a sort of a prime mover, uh, pointing people toward uh, drug abuse, suicide, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, you, you might take that as face value uh, just because, well, you know, they outrank me. They probably know better than me, this kind of thing. But having said that, it was an irresponsible thing for, for them to start doing. And it was, uh, and this is sort of where it gets dicey too, right? Because it's really easy. It's really ah. easy to, ah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really easy to sit here and think about like, oh, you know, Patricia pulling what a fool, what an evil person for trying to sort of demonize this thing and use it as as a scapegoat for her son's suicide. That's a that's a really easy way to look at this, especially if you're coming at it from the perspective of somebody who's played the game, enjoyed the game, written content for the game for years. But, you know, the other part of this is she was going through a real tragedy and she was struggling to find a way to understand it and cope with it. Uh, it probably ended up not being the healthiest way to do that, but that's where her head was at. I don't think she was operating out of malice. I think, I think most things that people can, that people ascribe to malice usually are more born of ignorance than anything like that. Uh, so that's where she was coming from on, on this. Um, I don't think bothered about Dungeons and Dragons or bad. I don't think that was started from a place of ignorance, hate, and Patricia pulling being a negative or bad person. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think any of that. I, I agree with you. I think this is a mother who has just suffered a massive tragedy in her own life, who is now trying to find direction, purpose, and reason for the things that have happened. And I think I don't think it's outside the realm of reason that those police officers may have picked up that concept at um at their church, because as I understand it, by this point, there's a fair few churches around the country that are like, you need to make sure these books are not in your house because they're teaching your children about magic and spells and they're mm-hmm. dangerous. 
in much the same fashion that during my childhood, we had churches that were talking about the dangers of Harry Potter, which mm-hmm. we learn we learn more recently that Harry Potter has its own problems, but it wasn't uh, kids learning actual witchcraft and devil worship that was among them. Yeah. Now, now, you know, you're talking about maybe they heard this stuff in churches. Keep in mind that she and her son were Jewish, so they would well, have. I was speaking about the police. Oh, oh OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The police yeah. may have picked that up in. You know, well, and it's possible they had a temple as well. Yeah. You know, what, whatever it may have been, whatever the religious influence may have been, it's entirely possible that that's where they picked up that concept True. Um, and then brought that to this investigation. And they're like, oh, no, we've heard about this during our own religious worship and how dangerous it is. And they then share that with Patricia mm-hmm. Pollack. Yeah, the so, Laycock's book describes them as initiating the bereaved mother into the lore of the satanic panic. Oh my God. Um, and for just some more context on this, uh, I'm going to read from uh, Laycock's book. And if you hear if if our wonderful audio editor, Scott, is not able to get all of this stuff out of there, if you hear pages turning and shuffling, that's just because I have reference materials out in front of me <laughs> on the desk while we're doing this. But um, he writes, Bink had left a suicide note. And the police told the Washington Post only that it contained, quote, unexplainable type things, end quote. Although Pulling never revealed the exact contents of the note, she stated that in it, quote, he equated himself with Adolf Hitler and the Antichrist and said that he had been summoned to commit murder, couldn't bring himself to hurt anyone else, and so must end his own life to rid the world of this evil, end quote. Searching his room, she also found, quote, violent, sadistic poetry, end quote. It seemed that there had been a part of Bink's life that Pulling had been unaware of and that he had been suffering in silence for some time. And so this this brings it back to um, societal changes. We sort of hinted at this when we were talking earlier, but um, changes in society and how people come to grapple with that. How, how do you understand that? Uh, and in the 80s... Um, Things things had been changing for a long time, especially since the war, but we were moving more and more toward a a time and a social convention where both parents are working, they're out of the house, there is less of a connection with children, and I think I was about to make a really broad statement that I'm not going to make now that I've had a chance to think about it, but I think then sort of as we are now, people were still trying to figure out how to navigate those kind of societal changes. You know, they are, it's a time when folks are starting to entrust daycares uh, with like looking after their kids because both parents are working and things like that. So parental control over, parental control or influence, um, influence is probably a nicer word than control, um, are being actively lessened by societal pressures for like dual incomes and things like that. So this is a case where a parent either didn't know or didn't want to know all the stuff that was going on with their child. Um, I'm not a parent, so I'm not going to, you know, pass a judgment on that one way or the other. You know, everything's difficult. People do the best they can sometimes, you know? Yeah. I mean, my own personal experience growing up in the 90s and into the like mid 2000s when I was a teenager. I 
did and thought a lot of stuff that my parents wouldn't have known about because I kept it from them. Mm-hmm. You know, that was and that was fairly normal among my friend group. There were things that we said, did, thought, felt that our parents would never hear about. Like you'd you would have to drag the truth from us on mm-hmm. those things. And some of that was, oh, well, my parents wouldn't understand this. Some of that was, oh, well, this is something for me, something that I'm dealing with. It's entirely possible that Bink was suffering from a lot of that same sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I I know in uh, Satanic Panic, they talked a little bit about how some of Bink's friends had said after the fact that Bink had confessed to them to doing things like uh, killing small animals and dissecting them. And I'll get into that in a little bit because Laycock writes a whole lot about that confession. Uh, and it's it involves some stuff that Pulling talks about but has never written down. But real quick before we get into that, I want to talk about sort of and again, you know, I'm 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 not a therapist. I'm not a I'm not a psychologist or anything like that. But this is just sort of my inter- my interpretations based on uh what I've read about it and what I know about it. But it it occurs to me that we basically every episode are like we're not accountants, lawyers, therapists. <laughs> yep, yep. We're just two guys. We're just a couple of guys. Yeah, like everybody else who uh, has a podcast where they speak uninformedly about things. Just a couple of people just chatting. <laughs> but, um, so you know, she, she. Uh, first of all. Um, there were, there was other stuff going on in the family and it's also thought that, uh, his suicide was perhaps an act of aggression toward his parents in a way, because they had both, uh, according, according to the research, both of them had been having extramarital affairs and it was probably bringing a lot of stress to the family. And he is already someone who's having trouble coping with what's going on in the world around him and just that additional stress. Um, so, you know, he, he unfortunately shoots himself on the front porch. His mother discovers it. she can't process sort of the hows and whys of him doing this. So she begins kind of building this story of why he did it. And, you know, it talks about how he was being, she was saying that he had been called to like murder uh, and he couldn't bring himself to do it. So that's why he killed himself to eliminate that evil from the world. She found like a prop that the dungeon master at the at the school club used. And it was uh, it was a note in one of her in one of his gaming material folders. And it said, your soul is mine. I choose the time at my command. You will leave the land, a follower of evil, a killer of man. And uh, Bink's character had been given a, a lycanthropic curse. And this was a prop used for that. So um, she says, uh, this is this is a quote from from um, from pulling. She says, when my son died and I saw the death curse that had been given to him, she's referring to the note. I thought that surely no one would take such a curse seriously. Surely no one would follow a, quote, command to commit suicide. Then I began to think about the 900 plus people of Jonestown who committed suicide at the command of deranged leader Jim Jones. So she's saying he was influenced by a charismatic leader who she she later sued the, uh, the principal and the school system. And it was thrown out multiple times at multiple levels for that. But 
she also is trying to tell this. She's saying that like he was brought under the influence and aegis of, of somebody else. She's also saying, you know, if you think about it, the fact that he killed himself is actually terribly heroic because he took himself out of the equation rather than be forced to commit the murders that he didn't want to do. So again, it points to somebody trying to rationalize and cope with a situation they're having trouble dealing with. And he had, uh, you know, she, she talks about how he was, you know, perfectly normal before all of this, but like you, like you indicated, he had probably had a lot of emotional problems and, that he wasn't dealing with. And this is something because um, after all this, after Pat Pulling founded Bad and she ended up getting involved with a lot of like law enforcement conferences, she was able to sell herself as an expert on um, investigator on occult murders and things like this, which let's just be honest, she was not qualified or credentialed for anything like that. Um, she would give talks sometimes where she would say things that she never wrote down. And um, uh, Robert Hicks of the Virginia Department of Criminal Justice Services um, was able to get a transcript of one of the lectures that she gave uh, to a group called the Cult Crime Network. And I'm going to read the account of, of it. And it says, uh, Jones published a transcript of a lecture Pulling gave in 1986 at the North Colorado South Wyoming Detectives Association Seminar in Fort Collins, Colorado. Pulling stated then, but in, not in any of her own publications or subsequent interviews, that several weeks before his death, her son had been displaying lycanthropic tendencies, such as running around the backyard on all fours and barking. Pulling was also quoted as saying that within a month before her son's death, 19 rabbits he had raised were inexplicably torn apart although no loose dogs were seen and a cat was found disemboweled with a knife. So you couple that with what you said and she knew something was going on, but she, you know, they as a family didn't try to address it or anything. And then she uses that curse, that prop curse note as a way to kind of explain all of it. So it's again, like, Everybody has different reactions and different ways of coping with tragedy. And hers was, and I'm not, and I'm just saying this objectively, I'm not passing a judgment. Hers was to build this fiction that insulated her from any kind of responsibility for what happened. That's how I see it. You know, anybody, anybody listening to this is free to disagree with me. I encourage you to you know, reach out to us and give your thoughts on it. And if we get enough of them, then we'll have an episode where we just talk about responses to that. But um, like I said, she was able to reinvent herself as an occult crime investigator, etc. Um, we talked about societal influences and things like that. I think these kind of sort of reactions to culture and, you know, I say I think like I'm some deep thinker. A lot of people think this, but I've read it and agree with it <laughs> yeah. um, that these kind of cultural, sociocultural reactions to the world are, are born out of uh, an individual or a group's uncomfortability with change and the inability or unwillingness to adapt to it like. Um, like, for example, we were talking about how in the 80s, the economy was changing. Um, we, it was very much the beginnings of the transition 
of the United States from a manufacturing economy to a service and informational technology economy. People had trouble adapting to that. It disrupted their livelihoods. Um, it disrupted their plans. Um, and that's, I mean, it's all terribly unfortunate. It's unfortunate, like it's a byproduct of change and evolution in society and technology though. So you have, you have this group of people who are looking for an outlet, something to lash out against, uh, because their life is out of their control to, at least from their perception to a certain degree. So, you know, you get sort of a culture wars aspect of it. And, you know, if, if you're unfamiliar, if you're young enough that you're unfamiliar with the culture wars or anything like that, uh, read a lot about, um, Nixon in the sixties and, uh, the, the dom like how that domino continues to fall now and people voting against their interests, et cetera. But, um, essentially you, you, you run a shell game, uh, and, and it's not even something that one person is running. It can just be sort of, sort of something in the zeitgeist where, X is the problem, but you can't do anything about X. So instead you focus on Y and try to pretend like that's a problem. And so you agitate about that. And that's where we are. The world, the economy was changing. Um, like families were no longer necessarily nuclear. Um, and, you know, let's face it, the nuclear family kind of is a bit of a fiction in and of itself. But the much broader perception of family was changing in the in the 70s and 80s. Um you know, uh, multiple income households, like we were talking about, things like that. Um, it created stress on home life, child rearing, um, economic changes, created financial stress. And you just look for something to lash out at. And then you, with the pullings, like it's, you know, reported that, you know, they were having extramarital affairs. Um, that's another level of stress on a child. Like for all we know, the parents could have been very open about that with each other and everybody knew what was going on. But maybe 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 Bink didn't have context on that, and you know even if he did have context, you're at sixteen, you're you're not really equipped to understand that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So that that could play into it a little bit. I've been just going off on a tear there, but I wanted to try my best to sort of place some things into sort of like a socio-economic context for what's going on, because like it's the same thing that you see nowadays, just the players are different. Um, the same kind of um. There's change going, um, you know, it's 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 really analogous to what we see right now about how um, LGBTQ things, people are really like more conservative elements really pushing back against things like that because it runs counter to what their perception of society, culture, morals and everything like that are supposed to be. Um, so they find something to blame for it. And really, they're not mad at that. They're mad about something else. But that has become the focus of their misplaced anger. Right. Yeah, I think it, it ends up being a situation where regardless of what's going on in their world, they're upset about kind of just everything overall. And right. they want they want something that they feel like they can justify their anger toward. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. And that ends up being whatever whatever the topic of the day is. Um. I I have an interesting tidbit that I will now add, which was the thing you reminded me of earlier, which is during this period where Patricia Pulling and Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons are like really gaining traction. There's a lot of people talking about how 
if you if you really look at D and D, like there's there's mm-hmm. material there that will teach kids how to get into actual witchcraft. Well, I found out what that supplement is called because it's not anything that TSR wrote. It's certainly not anything that Wizards of the Coast wrote. It's a supplement written by a self-purported archdruid, Isaac Bonewitz, uh, who apparently is not, uh, he's not super popular in witchcraft circles, much less anywhere else. Uh-huh. He wrote a supplement for D&D called Authentic Thaumaturgy. And the concept was that he was like, magic in D&D doesn't make any sense and it doesn't work anything like real magic works. And so here is a magic system for D&D that makes the magic more real. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go into the complete text of this in part because I couldn't find a good copy for a little bit of money. There were all the copies I found were a lot of money for iffy copies. I did find a review which says the authentic thaumaturgy magic system is a percentile based spell casting system with dozens of tables, acronyms, attributes, and modifiers. If you want a magic system where you have to perform algebra in order to figure out all your attributes and spells, here it is. The formula for a create light spell is relatively simple. It's your mana point cost equals five times the desired intensity in lumens times the duration in minutes divided by your focus factor. Now, of course, that's just the mana point cost. Are you sure that Steve Jackson didn't write this? Because it sounds like you're talking about GURPS occult or something like that. Here's the hilarious thing is that Steve Jackson Games reprinted the the supplement in 1998 i was just joking when i mentioned steve jackson (laughs) but that is ridiculous i mean it sounds like something (laughs) steve jackson would want to do uh the real quick just to give credit where credit's due uh it's a rpg.net classic review and the author's name Uh is david edelstein okay Oh, it's so it's such a good and we can we can include this in the show notes as a link as well. I love it so much because this the person who wrote the review, David, is so angry about how bad a supplement it is. Uh, He goes on to talk about how this is not a generic meta system that you can apply to any TTRPG. This is really a specifically advanced Dungeons and Dragons or something similar meta magic system that uh Isaac Bonewitz is like oh well you could you could adapt this to any other system you would just have to do all that work on your own <laughs> <laughs> and so folks who are like oh yeah D&D is teaching our kids about real magic and trying to get them to be devil worshipers are referencing a a not only non-official printed material but printed material that as I understand it, was almost universally reviled within the community. <laughs> yeah, and like, it bad would send these introductory letters 
to, to people. And this is like the first paragraph of it. Many people ask, what, what is BAD Incorporated? BAD stands for, first of all, BAD Incorporated sounds like a wrestling faction. Hell yeah. But many people ask, what is BAD, what is bad Incorporated? BAD stands for Bothered About D&D and Other Harmful Influences on Our Children. We are an organization dedicated to educating the public on the harmful effects of entertainment violence, which is occurring and growing in our society. We are concerned with violent forms of entertainment, such as violent occult-related rock music, role-playing games that utilize violent occult mythology and the worship of occult gods in role-playing situations like Dungeons and Dragons, teen Satanism involving murder and suicide, and pornography as it is affecting adolescent behavior and reshaping attitudes and values in a negative manner. Um, and that that that's another side of it, too, is they were bothered about Dungeons and Dragons, comma, among other things, like, uh, like black metal and something like that. Because, like, 1988 was when Geraldo did his thing on backmasking and uh, like playing heavy metal backwards and that subliminally influencing people. So it was all sort of part and parcel of the same thing. That's why it's called the satanic panic and not the satanic D and D panic. Um, Cause there were a whole lot of other parts of the, of, of that pie chart really. Yeah. I think the point where I stop feeling like Patricia Pulling is just someone who's trying to figure out the situation and who's trying to, you know, make sense of a terrible tragedy and figure out how that relates to her life and ends up targeting her anger towards something that didn't actually have that much effect on the outcome mm -hmm. is the point where she starts working with Dr. Thomas Radecki, who is her subject matter expert for bad. And uh, they start doing things like going to court cases mm -hmm. where someone is using a D&D &D defense to be like, well, yeah, D&D &D is evil. D&D &D is terrible. And people are like, oh, these experts are talking about this. Let's double check their credentials. Wait a minute. Why are you here and talking to us? Yes, Patricia Pulling with your two-year arts degree from J. Sargent Reynolds Community College. Not knocking J. Sarge. J. Sarge is a fantastic community college in the Richmond area. But... That does not qualify you to be an expert uh, investigator on occult murders and crimes. Yeah. Well, and to give you a little bit of background on Dr. Radecki, uh, he ends up getting his license revoked in 1992 for uh, having, let's let's call them extracurricular activities with his patients. Uh-huh. Diplomatic. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it PG-13, even though uh, I called someone an a-hole earlier. It's fine. <laughs> um, so they, the two of them are traveling the country. They're giving seminars. They're giving presentations. Uh, Pat Pulling is talking to police officers and educating them on the dangers of D&D, &D, which is now like, look at the thing coming full circle. You know, it's two police officers give her this fiction that she then attaches to. And then she turns mm -hmm. around and starts teaching other police officers about this. Like at that point where they're making hundreds of dollars per seat on these seminars, telling people what are essentially bald faced lies mm -hmm. and uh, people are misrepresenting Patricia's credentials to the audiences that she's speaking to, saying that she has degrees that she's never had, saying that she has certifications that she's never had, 
and she's just going along with it because that's part of how she maintains her position of authority. Yeah. We're beyond, in my opinion, we are beyond a concerned mother trying to figure out what happened. Mm -hmm. And we are directly into, well, like this is, I am now popular for this. People are now paying attention to me. I am important. Mm -hmm. And this is how I maintain that importance. Yeah. Yeah. The way to handle that would be to refute what people were saying about her qualifications. Um, You know, so she, um, she actually uh, ended up quitting bad in 1990 after the um, what's sort of called the Stackpole or the polling report written by Michael Stackpole and Stackpole was a, game designer um you know he's he's worked on a lot of computer games most uh you know in since the 90s and stuff like that like he did wasteland wasteland 2 um that's that's what i know him from at least but he basically wrote a whole thing that refuted sort of point by point every claim she ever made uh and it was highly critical of their data collection their analysis their reporting uh he found she'd given a misleading uh, account regarding her qualifications like you just mentioned and he published the report in 1990, and then she quit bad. And just as a, an interesting little um, uh, sort of personal connection that I have to this whole thing is, um, you know, like we talked about pulling, uh, this all happened just right outside Richmond. And for many years, I worked for the Richmond Times-Dispatch with a lot of people who had worked there for years and years and years and years. So um, uh, as the popularity of Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games increased, Pulling's views and statements were increasingly called into question. For example, she once told a newspaper reporter that 8% of the people living in Richmond, Virginia, were Satanists. She had arrived at that figure, she explained, by estimating that 4% of adults and 4% of teenagers were involved with Satanism and added them to get 8%. When the reporter informed her that mathematically that was 4%, not 8%, she claimed that it did not matter because even 8% was a conservative figure. I know that reporter. I worked with him for many years. Um, <laughs> uh, and I can imagine him having that conversation with her. Uh, and it's I, I just kind of find it funny. And then you get somebody who's just doubling down on their incorrect information because they've been called on it. But yeah, um, so, you, you know, she pulled out. She quit bad after 1990, after that report came out. Um, there, I, There's never been any instance that i've read where she did any kind of recanting of anything that she had said or done uh and unfortunately she died of lung cancer in 1997 you know i think it's always she's only 49 um you know you can say say what you want about anybody and how they live their life but you know i'm never going to celebrate somebody's death um especially at that kind of age so uh, i look at it this way like that's time that was robbed from her being able to recognize the mistakes that she had made um, you know, who knows if she'd still, if she were still alive today, um, you know, she'd be in her seventies. Um, she would, uh, no, she'd be in her late seventies, early eighties, I think, but maybe, maybe she would have had time to reflect on that. Um, and you know, also you feel bad for, for her family as well, having, having lost somebody. And, uh, she died, yeah. uh, in, I believe September, 1997. Um, she was, in addition to, you know, the founder of BAD, she was also like the commissioner of the Old Dominion Girls Softball League, and she was working as a real estate agent at the time. Um, 
she was present and I'm reading from the Richmond Times Dispatch obituary. Um, I think it was the Times Dispatch. It might have been the news leader before it might have been before they merged, but I think it's the Times Dispatch. Uh, it's by a reporter who I don't know. So they were gone before I started there in 2007. But uh, it says she was presented with several citations and awards from police organizations, including the Kentucky Colonel Award, which is the state's highest civilian honor for her work. So it just goes to show how easy it is to buffalo people who are choosing to be ignorant about a situation and not doing their own research. So if you can take any lesson away from this, it's like if somebody tells you something, there's nothing wrong with looking it up. Like you're not, it's trust, but verify, you know, don't, don't just take something at face value because somebody made a very convincing case for you on it. Well, and you can find a in favor of argument these days Mm -hmm. for literally any stance. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it exists online somewhere. You're going to find at least one, like follow the money, follow the interests. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. It's tough. It's tough to trust even mainline scientists these days, but you also, you have to believe in something. Mm-hmm. Surely. Believe in facts. Believe in, verif- believe in facts. verifiable facts. Um, Peer reviewed studies. And uh, sort of a very interesting coda to this whole thing, taking it all the way back to the beginning, you know, Dungeons and Dragons being satanic and everything like that. Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson were very devout as Christians by all reports. Like Gygax was a Jehovah's Witness. Um, uh, I, I went to elementary school with a, a Jehovah's Witness, and it was always interesting because they, you know, they didn't celebrate holidays like Christmas or anything like that. Um, so he would always not be at school. But, you know, Gary Gygax, uh, people would send him Christmas cards all the time. And he would say like, hey, you know, I'm like, I really appreciate that you're thinking of me, but I'm a Christian, so I don't celebrate Christmas. Um, well, he believes he, uh, there, oh, that like Christmas right. is sort of a co-opted pagan holiday, the the way it's Got celebrated it. in Western cultures, essentially. Um, and then Dave Arneson did uh, a lot of missionary work. So the idea they from what I understand and from what I've read, they thought it was kind of comical that and and upsetting to a degree that this thing that they created and enjoyed because they like playing games was being mashed up with with satan worship uh the occult witchcraft etc i'm hoping this isn't coming through on my microphone but someone is vacuuming i think their car immediately outside my window i'm sure scott will be able to edit it out because i can't hear a thing oh good yeah um but yeah you know it's it's just really interesting you could there there's a lot that dr laycock wrote about gary gygax and his faith and everything which is very interesting to me because it's something that i didn't i didn't really know before i started doing some research for this but that that to me just adds sort of the ironic twist to the whole thing that you know he was like no that's that's not what it is well it's it's also uh it's pointed out in the book i was reading satanic panic that TSR didn't say anything in to dispute any of these claims in mm-hmm. part because once that started up, their sales skyrocketed. Oh, yeah. I mean, anytime somebody's telling you not to do something, what are you going to do? You know, so it, it just makes sense. It just makes sense that they would do that. I can definitely see the vacuum cleaner on my sound clips now. <laughs> I can hear it. I can hear it, but it's fine. Uh. Yeah. So like with sales 
skyrocketing. Of course, they're not going to speak out and be like, no, absolutely not. Like we will, we will take you to court over these claims because mm-hmm. it's, it's all good press, baby. Yeah, exactly. It's free marketing for them. But um, I've, I've sort of hit all the points I wanted to talk, talk about on this. It's just, you know, there's a very interesting local connection to the, for the satanic panic for us, at least being uh, in Richmond. Um, it was interesting for me to actually read some researched information about it and really helping me place it in sort of a societal context that I didn't have before. And it really, I like to, I like to think of myself as the kind of person who goes out of my way to consider other people's perspectives on a thing rather than just being, well, you know, this is the way I think. So it's definitely right. But um, I had just never put the pieces together, like talking about the way, you know, society and the economy were shifting and the parts that that could play into this, you know, like I never thought about how we we hadn't really developed a, a good therapy culture at that point. Um, and just, you know, struggling to try to find a way to rationalize what you're probably thinking is a senseless thing. Or, you know, maybe after it finally happened, um, when when her when her son died is pulling started to realize what the contributing factors were and she could have maybe done something about it. Yeah. I mean, that's totally possible. And it's overall, the whole situation is a huge tragedy because Mm -hmm. these concerns grew out of something for these families. And for a lot of them, it's a situation where there was stuff that was outside of their control that they didn't understand. And this two was something that was outside of their control and they didn't understand and they felt like well that must be related then mm-hmm. yeah um but it's there's so much more about this that 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 we could talk about there's so many more facets of of sort of the crystal of the satanic panic and so many other parts of just the the dungeons and dragons tabletop portion of it that we could go into but we're at about an hour now, so we should probably go ahead and wrap this up. We'll save was, something for next time. <laughs> I was going to say, I know we hardly touched the surface of Jack T. Chick, and yeah. we didn't. We hardly mentioned Dark Dungeons at all. But let's just do a whole episode it, on that. Yeah, yeah let's just do a whole like, episode on that. I was like, we can do a movie review of Dark Dungeons and talk about Jack T. Chick while we're at it. Yeah, that sounds great. I used to read those Chick tracks all the time when I was in college <laughs> when they were people were starting to post them on the internet all the time. <laughs> Um, they were, they were fantastic. Oh my God. They're so far over the top as to be absurd. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But if anybody, if anybody, if anybody listening has any thoughts on bad, on satanic panic about, you know, Geraldo and black metal, anything that we've talked about, uh, feel free to reach out to us. Um, you can do that a couple ways. Josh, what's one of them? Uh, well, they can tweet at me at black cloak DM on Twitter. They could also tweet at me uh, at Wave Brandalore on Twitter. I feel like there's some other ways too. You know, well, they'll, well, they could jump into the Discord, right? Bit.ly slash Goblin Discord and join the conversation there. They could probably also email us at contact at goblinsandgrowlers.com. Also, an option they could tweet at Goblins Growlers on Twitter, which is a account that both of us have access to. That's true. And maybe they're not internet savvy. Um, they can uh, telephone, telegraph, tell a friend about the Goblins and Growlers podcast to bring other people into the conversation as well. Um, and then if if 
all of those are not enough for you, um, then you just have to send us a letter to P.O. Box. Oh, God. Five. <laughs> no, wait. No, I can't remember it. I'll have to put it somewhere else. Maybe in the show notes after I remember it. Just record it after we're done and we'll have Scott drop it. In I, can, I can record it in a robot voice. Be like three, five, seven, eight, nine. Actually, I think that's it. Uh-huh. I think it is three, five, seven, eight, nine. Uh, North Chesterfield, Virginia, two, three, two, three, five. Uh huh. P.O. That's our P.O. Box number, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I said P.O. Box like three times earlier. And then you went off on a tangent trying to remember <laughs> what the number was. I was just bringing it back around. But that's fair. Yeah. Reach out to us. This was a bit more of a, a heavy topic than uh, we're used to talking about. And, you know, we tried to handle it as seriously and respectfully as we could. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like we, we actually put some effort into researching what we're talking about. So we just don't sound like freaking idiots on it. Um, but you know, it's, it's always possible we get something wrong. We're not experts on this. We're enthusiastic amateurs about, uh, the hobby and the history and everything like that. So, uh, if, uh, you feel a need to point something out to us that we overlooked, uh, please also let us know about that. But, uh, otherwise, uh, what do we have any, any stuff that we, uh, need to promote? Um, I don't think we've got anything super specific to promote right this moment. Our sister podcast, Quid Pro Roll, uh, very recently as of recording this, so it'll have been a couple of weeks ago now, um, as of release, Mm -hmm. hit 50,000 downloads, which is huge. We're very excited about that. And we're thinking about maybe doing some kind of Mm -hmm. charity event related to that. So, uh, keep whether it whether it's going to be a live show or a stream, we're not really sure about right now, but we're working on having some prizes to raffle off for that just to celebrate. Um, so that'll be cool. We're um, also uh, going to have a public gaming event uh, in November. We're going to try and get back on the horse for those. Uh, so uh, we'll throw the link in the show notes for the tickets for that. Uh, if they're still available, they're going to be free tickets, but we're just doing a head count. I don't know if we actually want to include that particular item because this episode will be releasing two days before the event. Is that, yeah, you're right. Yeah. never mind. Um, we'll probably do one in December. So, uh, we'll, we'll put the link up for that one for an event in December. That you could almost definitely get tickets for. If you're listening to this episode, it'll be, it'll be. It'll be in Chesterfield County, I'm pretty sure. That sounds about right. So, yeah, so that's good. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about the calendar aspect of that. So thank you for catching me on that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then other than that, um, you know, we promoted Quid Pro Roll. Uh, I'm going to start the hype train for uh, something Alex and I are working on. The uh, You know, Alex, our DM for uh, Quid Pro Roll, also known as Josh's uh, fiance. Uh, uh, we're starting a kind of a weird comic book podcast and we just had the we recorded the pilot episode recently and we just had it edited so we're circulating it to some folks to get some feedback on it and then we're going to try and record the first season of it soon working title is tights no rights about uh golden age superheroes villains sidekicks characters that have fallen into public domain because of various things and just talking about how ridiculous they are um so I, I've enjoyed it, and Alex, with her tremendous amount of uh, comic book knowledge, is uh, a, a fantastic host. For yeah, for I was going to say, of the things you highlighted of Alex, you did not highlight the fact that she is co-owner of Alpha Comics and Games, conveniently located in Willow Lawn, Richmond, Virginia. For the folks who might not know that, I, 
I had to make sure she said that when we were recording the pilot. <laughs> I was like, do you, do you want to talk about Alpha? Oh, yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so I guess we'll catch up. I'm not even sure what our next episode is going to be at this point. I, we have a spreadsheet, but I don't remember what it says. Uh, but I don't know off the dome, but we'll be recording it in a week or so. <laughs> OK, well, we'll figure it out before then. But anyways, folks, uh, reach out to us if you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything like that. But otherwise, we will see you in a couple weeks. Bye, y'all. like what you hear consider subscribing and giving us a review over on apple podcasts especially early in the feed subscriptions and reviews are super helpful for bringing new listeners our way thank you